Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day, you are listening to episode 64 of the Howie Games. Hope you are having the world's best day. Thanks for all the great feedback about last week's episode with Shane Warne. There's no doubt the king is box office. Hit me up at MarkHoward03 on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook with your feedback, suggested guests and the like. And please, if you could do us a small favour and recommend the show to someone that you think will appreciate it, that would be cool. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes With five gold medals, three silver and a bronze Ian Thorpe is statistically Australia's most successful ever Olympian. Throw out the stats, and it's also pretty much universally agreed that Thorpe is our best ever Olympic athlete. The best ever. Think about that. All the champions this country has produced, and this week's guest is the number one. One of the all-time greats he's spoken about like that right now. Maybe the swimmer of the century. He goes in, and it's there. It is there. It is world record. Again and again and again for this incredible man. Or is he a man? Maybe he is a super fish because that's what he's doing. Boys and girls, you are watching a man that they'll be talking about centuries from now. Ian came to the Howie Games courtesy of Optus, for whom he has been an ambassador for three years. Thrust into the spotlight at just 14 years of age, Ian's life, it's never been far from the headlines. Whether it's breaking world records, winning medals, retiring, coming back, or more recently, supporting the yes vote for same-sex marriage, the Torpedo has attacked life with a passion few athletes I have ever met can match. This is a giant, a giant of Australian sport. Enjoy Ian Thorpe, OAM. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I Well, we've had some guests on this show, but when a man rolls in that's knocked out five Olympic gold medals, all sorts of world records and plenty more, it is a great treat to welcome to the Howie Games, Ian Thorpe. Ian, I'm that excited about having you on the show. How are you? (laughs) I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, really good. Before we get stuck into it, I'm sure you get that introduction a lot. You know, five-time Olympic gold medalist, Ian Thorpe. How does it make you feel these days when you hear it? In some ways, it might have almost been a lifetime ago for you. Well, if it, do you know what? It does feel like a lifetime. I realised um, earlier this year, uh, so in September, that I had been an Olympic champion longer than I hadn't been. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm thankful that I did it when I was very young, by the way. Um, but it was kind of like, wow, um, this has been my life now for, you know, for so many years uh, and part of my life for so long. Uh, when I, I see those memories and moments, um, you know, I do get goosebumps still um and it, it's it, it's amazing for me to think of uh all of the accomplishments that i had uh now that i've spent enough time out of the sport and uh you know and, and in reflecting um realizing uh how significant those accomplishments were well they're of tremendous significance and they're almost a part of the fabric of Australian history. I don't think that's overstating it, especially because it was that home Olympics where it, where it kicked off for you in Sydney. I was actually just looking now uh, a bit of YouTube. Um, do you ever sit back and just sort of have a bit of a Google and have a look at some of those moments? Because still watching it now, watching that four by 100 uh, on YouTube on an iPad, it gives me goosebumps and, uh, and you were there doing it. Uh, look, I do it if I need an ego boost, um, <laughs> which doesn't usually happen. So I, I go to enough functions where they play little s- snippets of those uh, that, you know, I, I'm able to remember them. Um, and, you know, there's some parts of races that um, I don't remember, remember at all um, and other parts that, uh, you know, feel like it was yesterday. 
we're going to get into where it all started for you, but uh, the good folk at Optus, where you're an ambassador, have organised this, which I appreciate it. Um, Beyond, if I got the pronunciation right of your company, yeah. Beyond, firstly tell me about what Beyond is before we get into the involvement with Optus, because now you'll be going into the business world. Well, for everyone, um, you have those moments of, of virtuosity where <laughs> things just seem to happen. You don't overthink it. You don't overcomplicate it. You feel pretty relaxed. Uh, you feel like you're switched on and engaged. Um, we actually teach people how to get to being able to do that in the matter of seconds. Uh, it takes about 30 days of practice and then refining. Um, I've been through the process. I wish I had it when I was swimming. Hmm. Um, it's something that, you know, when, uh, you know, we look at, c- at companies like Optus and the places that we want to work, uh, we usually work with executive teams and then they want to implement what we have taught them in another way for the rest of the companies. Um, so I founded the company with Shane Watson um, and uh, a doctor in the US called Jacques Delaire. And what's the basis? Oh, that's nice to hear about Shane. He's another member of the Howie Games team. He came on, uh, we sat down, had a chat in Jamaica. So what, what are you teaching the good folk, Ian, when you're talking about an executive team? What are you trying to explain to them and leave them with? So what we're trying to explain is how they sabotage their own performance. Huh. We do it in sport as well. Um, so if you're thinking about the result, you're not thinking about the thing that you should be, which is what you can do right then and there. So I'll give you a bit of background on Jacques. He he actually works with um, special forces, SAS, fighter pilots, race car drivers, um, and top athletes and CEOs. And you name it, he's worked with them. Uh, And there's similar traits that we all have, and it's universal, um, that we actually find find in people. Uh, To go through our process, you have to do a test that combines 11 different psychological tests um, so that we've got a great snapshot of you and so that you can work on where you need to improve. Um, The skills that we give you is basically what you're doing wrong, how you're sabotaging yourself, your success, um, you know, what mind chatter is, why it's there, why is that little voice there, what to do about it. So it's those kind of skills um, that we cover in the program. We won't talk about them because it's, <laughs> it's our IP. Yep. Um, and it, But it, we get emails from people uh, after we've gone through it that, that say, this has changed my life. Um, and it's amazing to be able to work on something where you're working with people on the improvement that they want to make and they want to see for themselves. And we mentioned uh, that you've been an ambassador with Optus for three years. How did this come apart and what role do they play in your whole operation, mate? Well, Optus, Optus has been great. Um, I, <laughs> I came on board with um, a silly ad that we did <laughs> before the Olympics, which was a spoof. So I had to make, we made an agreement that for 48 hours over the weekend, we will put out a video, a YouTube video, um, and uh, of me opening a pool cleaning business. Um, we then followed that up with uh, another commercial of me and my Enthorpedo pool cleaning uh, business. So it started off with an ad. Um, we got along, uh, you know, I, I got along with the team at Optus so well um, that they extended my contract for five years. So it was, it was one of those that we just found a, a great match I've enjoyed working with them and also their involvement in sport with the, uh, you know, the Olympic team and Paralympic team in 2020. Um, it means I still get to get have an involvement in sport as well. Um, I've been to so many communities uh, with Optus, uh, regional communities and things like that, um, and being able to meet people uh, around the country. So that's been pretty ace. Before we go back, great man, to where it all started for you in a little swimming pool somewhere, which you'll explain to us, I just want to get a quick snapshot of where you are in the world today by asking you a couple of really quick questions. You just popped into my head. So, for example, what are you listening to at the moment? Oh, I can see you. Because <laughs> you're in Sydney and I'm in Melbourne. Now exactly. I've got the big cheesy grin. Now I can see you. That's better, mate. So, uh, at the moment, what are you listening to music-wise, Ian Thorpe? Oh, that's a tough question. Um I'm trying to answer it without embarrassing myself. I'm really into In Excess at the gym, and I always forget how many hit songs In Excess had. And I know how old school that is. 
Um, but that's been my gym music lately. Oh, we're sitting at Triple M. I think you can plug uh, NXS as much as you want. Thank you. So, Thank okay, that leads me to the next question. You're at the gym. What are you doing to keep fit? Because I can see the big guns poking out of your T-shirt from 700 <laughs> kilometres away. What, what's Thorpey doing to keep fit at the moment? So I, I have a trainer. Um, so I go to the gym three or four times a week uh, and do weights. Um, I injured my shoulder, so I can't actually do any swimming or anything like that. And I find having a trainer, um, you know, if I wanted to cancel a session, I feel like I'm letting someone down (laughs) and otherwise I just wouldn't go to the gym. So it's kind of having that other person there and it could be a friend if you don't have to have a trainer, but you feel like you're letting someone down because I have the best excuse in the world, which is I've done this all my life. I can have a day off today, but I kept on doing that every day and it doesn't really work. Um, and then, uh, you know, I try and go for a walk and every day for about an hour. Um, and that's for, not for fitness, I don't think. It's just for my own general well-being. Streaming services, what are you watching at the moment? Um, on Netflix, um, just finished watching Ozark. Oh, uh, how good. Yeah, which uh, I loved. Yes. Um, what else am I watching? No. <laughs> Ozark's a good one. Ozark is a good one. Um do you know the other one that I, I recommend, and it makes me sound like a crazy person, cool. is um, Wild Wild Country. Well, I haven't seen that. Okay, so it is um, sex, drugs, occult, and guns. <laughs> so for all the and children it's a true story. out there, we might... Okay, it's a true story <laughs> right. as well. But I didn't, I didn't know the story, um, and this is the embarrassing part. Mm. So I tell people, watch this, and halfway through the first episode, I realise... Um, the cult leader, I actually have eight of his books. Oh, wow. And then I went, oh, um, his books are brilliant. And I actually think that, I don't want to give it away, but um, it was, I think his work was manipulated because I get some great stuff out of his books. Right. Anyway, I'm not joining a cult. Uh, Good. Yeah. Uh, What are you reading at the moment on the bedside table? Um. I've got oh, I've got multiple books. Um, Good boy. Yeah, so I'm I'm reading one about Korea at the moment. Korea. Yeah, um, and just you know all of the divide and what's happening there. Um, and then the other one that uh, is sitting there. Actually, no, there's only one. And before we're about to go back to that original pool now, but I'm starting to feel where you are in life. What is the thing that you are most passionate about right now? Um. It, it would be be the work that we that I'm doing, um, and cool. it's not only the work that I do for Beyond. It's also the work that I do as an ambassador, like for Optus. Um, I also do a lot of um, speaking gigs around the world. Um, and what's your and- message? What, if you had to encapsulate it, because it'd be a fascinating chat. But if I sat there and Ian Thorpe comes on stage, what are you trying to leave me with? It depends what they ask. Um, okay. Some people want motivation. Yep. Um, how do you actually? get out of bed, um, you know, when you wake up exhausted, um, you know, all of those things of how to, you know, uh, setting goals. Uh, and some people just want to hear what my story is, um, how I've actually got from uh, being that kid that learned how to swim to what I do today. Which is what we're going to hopefully achieve in the next hour or so, mate. I am up to my ears in cricket at the moment. It's, I'm mm-hmm. working on cricket, all forms of the game at the moment. And just reading a bit about you... There was a push in your family as a young man to make young Ian Thorpe a cricketer because there's a bit of lineage there. There is. My father was a very good cricket player. Um, and it, I, I was actually planned um, birth date to have a good birth date for, for cricket. Right. Turns out I've got a horrible birth date for swimming. <laughs> um, but, you know, I played and I just, it just, I didn't enjoy it. Okay. Um, and it was one of those things that I actually blame my father for, for this a little bit. I had to learn how to bat only using my left hand, so I kept the ball on the ground. Oh, wow. And as a kid, you just want to smash the ball over the fence. (laughs) So I think that kind of affected me. Um, But I I ended up playing cricket again at high school a little bit um, because I I didn't necessarily hate it, um, but I I knew it wasn't for me. So you were amazing at swimming, obviously. What were you like at other sports? Um, The sport that would surprise people, I I played water polo, which is obvious, Yes. Um, but I ended up being really good at boxing. Boxing? Um, Yeah. And not boxer size, actual boxing with a, you know, one of those gritty old coaches um, who if I dropped, um, if I dropped my hands down at all, 
he'd actually hit me in in the forehead. Um, it was yeah, it was it was proper boxing training. Reason I did it is highly explosive, um, and the rotation that you have in boxing is the same that you have in swimming. The extension that you use is the same muscles as what you have um, that you need to use in the pool. So we did it for that explosive part um, of my training that I needed for sprint because I ended up not only swimming middle distance, I also became a a sprinter. Mm. Um, So we had to find other things like that because some of the stuff in the pool, we've got plenty of time in the pool, but it's finding those other exercises that you enjoy that can um, assist your performance. So how did the young cricketer that was being taught to play one-handed end up in a swimming pool? Where, where was your family growing up? Um, I was in. I grew up in Mil- Milpara, mm-hmm. um, so kind of southwestern suburbs of Sydney. Um, I was doing little athletics at the time. My sister was swimming um, because she broke her arm. The doctor said it would be good for her to swim so that uh, she can improve her wrist strength. Um so I was getting bored being dragged along to all these swimming carnivals. And my mum said, look, if you do, um, you know, one or two sessions a week, you could probably swim at them too. And so I jumped in, started swimming. Um, wasn't a natural. I had to swim with a nose plug on. When I first swam, um, I, I, I can remember one of my first races I, I did, um, I swam with my head out of the water, like water polo style, because it affected my sinuses. Um, the chlorine? chlorine? The chlorine. Yeah. So what what ended up happening was I was getting sick quite a bit as as, as a kid, an eight and nine-year-old. I think eight. No, it must have been eight. Um, and they, uh, the doctor sent me for an allergy test. And it turns out I'm allergic to chlorine. No. Yes. Promise. It's my kryptonite. Um, <laughs> and But the, the funny part of all of this is they asked my mum, if you think he's going to be a champion swimmer, you should have the adenoids in his nose removed and it would get rid of this problem. And so I still have my adenoids. So no confidence from mum. She didn't think I was going anywhere in the pool. Um, so that's kind of the the story. But what I, I loved, even as a kid, um, was the movement that I had in the water and how it made me feel. Um, I enjoyed, you know, just exploring what I was, was doing. Um, I can also remember the the exact uh, session, and it was with my, like my childhood coach, Chris Myers, um, where I worked out if I lengthened my stroke, because um, I, I was doing these 25s, getting tired, 25-meter sprints, getting tired, and I kind of thought, oh, what if I lengthen my stroke here um, and you know don't try as hard? Um, I'll see what time I go. And time happened to be faster. Huh. And then, you know, I got the click and I went, well, if you do that and you actually kick a bit harder, you try a bit. And so my stroke completely evolved in what was the next two weeks um, into what I had. And my progression from there, uh, I went from being, you know, a talented young uh, age group swimmer to someone that, you know, when I I think I'm 12 or I may have been 13, is kind of is competing against adults at the Olympic trials. Thorpe may be in front. Thorpe, Hackett, Thorpe and Hackett, they go in, they hit it, Thorpe won it. Thorpe oh, won it. World champion at 15. That's unbelievable. Two things from what you just described. What about sliding doors? What about if your sister didn't break her wrist? didn't start going to swimming training and then you sitting there bored. It's amazing how someone can come to their position in life, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think that's why you have to be open to all of the different prospects and opportunities that are out there. Um, You know, when I was a a kid in in the sport, you know, I played soccer and other things as well. Like there was a lot going on. Um, But you you realise those kind of fortuitous moments that you have um, throughout your life, um, how lucky you are. And it gives you a chance to reflect as well when you get a bit older um, on, you know, how your paths just happen to go in a particular direction. What was your most, before you start swimming against adults, what was your most, this is no time for modesty, Ian, I know you're a modest man, (laughs) what was your most dominant underage performance at a carnival, at at a state carnival, for instance? At state, I made a bet with my mum. Um, Go on. Now you've got yeah. me. So I said to her, if I win every race, <laughs> can I have a day off school? <laughs> right. So this is a car- carnival over two days. 
And so my weakest stroke was um, was breaststroke, and um, and I won everything. Well, how many are we talking here? Um, like 10. 10 goals? Maybe, maybe 12. I don't know. And did you 10? get the day off? I got the day off. Fantastic. Yeah. I had another funny one with days off from school and it was, it was the last year I went to school and it was because of how much travel, racing and all that that I was doing. And it said on my report card, I had 102 days out of 200 that I missed from school, oh. of which two are unexplained. And my mum goes, what were those two? <laughs> um, so... I kind of realised school's not really going to work for me anymore. Um, and the following year, I actually did it, um, like kind of homeschooled, um, because, you know, I had to fit in training. I had to fit in all of these other things that I was doing. Uh, at this stage, I'm about to, I'm on the national team. Um, the youngest as, ever Australian swimmer on the senior yeah, team. As a 14 year old. 14? Uh, yes. And it's young. was your first stop the Pan Packs in Japan? Pan Packs in Japan. So what is that like as a 14-year-old flying over there? I'm sure there's, well, there's swimmers twice your age in the team. Yeah, there were. Um, yeah, Holler, Chris Feidler. Um, like, uh, it's, it's, look, it, it was actually good. Um, I don't think I was treated any differently to the other athletes that were there. Um, but people were looking out for me uh, within that group. So I wasn't treated like a 14-year-old at all. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think, you know, people kind of made sure I was okay and everything else in a joking way or included me in things. Um, and, you know, so I felt comfortable um, as a rookie on a team. You went to Japan, Ian, and, and we'll, we can skip around a bit here. Your fame in Japan is as probably as big as anywhere in the world. Pe- people don't realise how big a deal you were in Japan. I'm sure that was because they saw you as a very young man competing at those pan packs. Tell me about the height of the craziness surrounding you in Japan. So I can remember after post-Sydney Olympics, 2001, yep. uh, was a competition in Fukuoka and Ashley Callas was in front of me and uh, he, he said to me, do people know you in Japan? And I said, oh, yeah, like a bit. Um, and we walked out and they actually had to have cordoned off with ropes with police screaming fans for us to be able to get to the bus, uh, to be able to get to the hotel, where then people were following us to the hotel. And everyone on the team just thought this is hysterical. Um, and I'm the one that has to deal with it, yeah. but it's... It, it's kind of, it's overwhelming um, when you experience something like that. Um, and then and then the, you know, kind of the crowds at the pool that were screaming, everyone with a fan with my face on it. Um, and it, it was, it's just one of those kind of rock star kind of feelings that you get. But I remember one night <laughs> and I had to go through a, um, like a, a different exit into the hotel because there was too many people at the front of the hotel to get through and my translator was with me and she's Japanese and so I'm running down there and they're trying to close this off before the other fans work it out and they stop her and then because I don't speak Japanese very well I can't say she's with me like she's like okay so she got caught up wasn't allowed to go in um the other funny one is um we smashed the American team the first day um I think it was this one yeah, it was. At uh, we, uh, yeah, we smashed them. And the worst part for them, after losing virtually every race to us, all of the relays, they had to get on an Ian Thorpe bus, <laughs> which oh, had my image plastered down the whole side of it as well. <laughs> More of Thorpey shortly. The next episode of the Howie Games features big hitting batsman Chris Lynn an athlete that is at the forefront of a new generation of cricket. Chris is playing a very, very different game in more ways than one to the game many of us grew up with. You, you, you go out there, you get a dark, you, you're sitting in your hotel bed, it's all well and good to say you're still getting paid two million bucks, but to me it's got to be a two-way street. I don't like um, take, take, take. Yep. To me I've got to give back, and if I'm not scoring runs, how can I help the team? How can I help the, the kids face a short ball? Um, how can how can I help around the group? keep them in good spirits um, because as I said it's got to be a two way street in my books and whether that's on field off field I always believe um, 
you know, what goes around comes around. That's Chris Lynn in the next episode of The Howie Games. Back to the torpedo. So how have you coped with fame, Ian? Um, in my job, I see, for example, what's a good example? Greg Norman walks into a room and everybody knows he's there. And he rolls with that. Michael Schumacher was exactly the same. I've seen you walk into a room where everybody knows you're there. But to me, from the outside, Norman and Schumacher, they lapped it up. But for you, it didn't seem as comfortable being the centre of the universe at times. Would that be fair? Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's close enough. Um, look, I, I know that I have a presence when I, I walk into a room. My word, um, my word. And I know how I can actually, I can, I can use it, but I, I don't like being the center of attention. Um, I, you know, at those kinds of functions and things like that, I would prefer to have a conversation with someone rather than small talk with everyone that's there. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of me. Um, and you know, I've kind of, I've gone through different, uh, stages of fame as well that, and how comfortable I am in the situation has actually changed, um, you know, when I was a kid, I was I was really uncomfortable with it. You know, you, I was a a teenager growing up in front of the country, um, and you know, as a teenager, it's a difficult time in your life uh, to say the least. You just want to fit in. Mm. You don't want to stand out. That's that's how you feel, I think, as a teenager. And so that was kind of where that came from, I think. And as I've gotten older, um, I have become more comfortable with it. Um, and do you know what? It's really nice that, you know, I'll be doing all my shopping and, um, someone, you know, comes up to me and, and says, do you know, I, I was there that night that you did this. Um, we loved it. We, we think you're great. Um, and just, you know, a small moment like that. And that just, fills you with warmth and joy now? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. If someone like, uh, you know, if someone's at the shops, if I'm out on the street, I kind of, I, I think I'm kind of fair game. Um, you can come up and say hi. Um, and people do. Um, people want selfies. Uh, but it's it's a nice little moment. It's not the overwhelming yeah. kind of fame that I had uh, before where it was, you know, paparazzis every other day. Um, you know, it's only paparazzis, you know, once a month now, um, which is kind of much better. Um, I have to assure you, I, I did live at one stage, though, um, down the road from um, Jacinta Franklin and Buddy. Mm-hmm. And so, if the paps didn't get them, they got me. <laughs> Two for one so deal. It was like, come on, guys! Like it's it was a good place for them to kind of stop. Um, but give us a break. Go go annoy someone else. I would love to sit here for three hours and discuss every one of your races with you. We obviously don't have the time for that, so I'll cherry pick if you don't mind. Sure. Sydney Olympics. You won the first gold medal for Australia. Your first mm-hmm. gold medal was that the four hundred. It was a four hundred free, and then so went on with a relay. Later went on with a relay. Yeah. Tell me, there was a headline in the Daily Telly with a photo of you saying "invincible." I reckon it said. How do you deal with pressure? Because there's um, no greater pressure than on you in the pool. Yeah. So it. I went from being someone that was a kid swimmer that thought I'm going to be too young for the Sydney Olympics to going into it as the unbackable favourite. And it was just assumed that I'd win. I had people coming up to me saying, we have tickets to the swimming, can't wait to see you win your your first gold. (laughs) No pressure. And I'm like, yeah. Um, And the the thing about it is, you know, I, I knew how many athletes have been so successful and failed in the Olympics. And I wasn't sure. I was thinking... Am I going to be one of those? The preparation uh, at the end was not amazing for me. Um, so I, I did the 400 heat and uh, it didn't feel comfortable. And I actually went and I qualified fastest, but I didn't feel as as easy as what it should have been for the time that I did. So I went into the the final. And, Do you, you know, sleep this is, the night before a final, an Olympic final? Uh, yeah, I did. Okay. I, sl- I was, I, yeah, I slept. Um, I, I then went out uh, and walked out. And as I walked out, the crowd's obviously cheering. Um, but I had the concern that, you know, I'm, I'm, am I up for this moment? Am I, am I ready for this? Can I do this? And it, it was, it wasn't until they 
got to lane four and they said, um, world record holder, world champion in both French and English, um, English and French, um, that I, the crowd cheered so loudly when they announced my name that I actually did that thing um, that you do when you're a kid, when you uh, get in trouble and you don't know what to do, so you smile. Um, so I kind of had this little smile, um, smirk, and it it got me out of my head. Um, and it was all, all I needed. Uh, and I stood on the blocks and decided I am going to swim this race where I'll lead the entire way, um, partly so I had flexibility in my performance because I knew that I had a relay coming up. So it meant that I could go in and be in front of everyone else and and get into a really efficient stroke um, so that I could um, kind of conserve a little bit of energy. And is winning an Olympic gold medal everything it's cracked up to be? Uh, it is. Um, like, it, the one, there's, there's a regret that I have that throughout, throughout my career I should have given myself just a little bit of time to pause and realise how significant it is. Um, like, you feel incredible, but you're always thinking of what's next. Um, I've got to get back into training in two weeks. I've got two weeks break after this, mm. and then we're on to the World Championships. Um, you always look at the next thing, and you shouldn't you should have those moments um, throughout your career where you actually reflect on how good, good it was. Um, I... I then went on to the four by one and it was, so I was swimming down, taking my suit off, put my, you know, kind of training costumes on and I've been wearing them for like a year. So they've got holes in them and things like that. Um, so I swam down a little bit and I went out to get my gold medal, um, for the 400 and I had to be not too excited, um, because raising your excitement level, um, was not going to be good for me going into like, cause there's an emotional toll that comes with that. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like just reflecting, enjoying what I was doing. But again, I was thinking of next, um, you know, I've got this four by one. So I, I go out the back, start putting on my, uh, my full body swimsuit and I broke the zip and the suit. on the suit. So I was like, what am I going to do here? And I'm looking at the wet costume that I just swam in or my costumes that have holes in them because they're the only options and basically went, I'll, I'll get back into that wet suit so I went to the uh, change rooms and everyone's looking for me because I'm not in marshalling area and they know that I'm trying to put a swimsuit on and there's about six or seven people trying to help me get this thing on and I can remember I had it up to like my waist and that's the easiest part um, it's getting over my shoulders. It's the, the hardest bit. And I can remember that one of our team managers saying, no, 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 he's, it's all good. He's, he's on his way. I can see him walking down to, to marshalling area. Um, and I'm going, I'm, no, it's not okay. <laughs> I haven't got to, And then I'm realising all these people around me are stressing me out. So I just go, everyone except for Piney, um, he's going to help me and everyone else just, just leave. And, you know, they kind of, the messaging, they could hear, yeah, yeah, he's coming, he's coming. We finally get it on. I race down um, the back of the pool at uh, Sydney Olympic Park, go through marshalling, sign my name to a lady named uh, Margaret, who was there when I was a junior swimmer. And, you know, I kind of smiled and went, well, I've done something, you know, I'm late. But I, I, I got there before uh, they announced Australia. And my team members didn't even ask where I was. Like, they, they just thought it was normal that yeah. I'd walk out at the very end. And, you know, w- that crowd, because we started, I don't know why, but people started to believe that we could actually beat the Olympic team, uh, uh, the American team, I sh- should say. Who said they were going to smash you like guitars? Smash us like guitars. And I don't know how, how it happened. Um, it, I think mostly it was probably driven by the media initially that – you know, Australia's a chance in this. Um, and we were looking around going, how are we a chance? We're seconds behind. Um, and then as it got closer, there was a belief in our team and not just the four guys that were out there. It was the entire team um, believed that we could win that race. We didn't know how, um, but we, we, we believed that we could. So we'd worked on our changeovers. Um, so the rule with a changeover is when your fingertips touches the wall, 
you basically have to have your toe on the blocks so you don't see the person touch. Mm-hmm. So we used to get, we used to do them, and if we were under 0.1 of a second, we were kicked out of the pool for being too kind of hot because um, we were aiming to get uh, between 0.1 and 0.3. 0.3 is getting a bit slow, but we were trying to aim between there because when you get to competition, you get a little bit more excited and the timing gets less. So we nailed that part of it. So that's where we made up some time. But the rest of the time came from everyone in that race. Um, everyone best performance. Michael Klim, first leg. He Michael's blind as a bat. He asked me what time he did. And I said, well, you just broke the world record. And he goes, yeah, 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 but what time? And I'm like, mate, it's the fastest time ever anyone's ever done. Um, like, you're good. <laughs> um and I'm, I'm going, I'm going to focus on what I've got to do. Oh, this was after his leg he asked you this? this is, uh, straight after his leg. Right. Straight after his swam. I'm, we're still waiting there. Um, so, uh, Fides is in the pool at this stage. Um, and again, back-end performances. We knew how the Americans were going to swim this, this race because um, they'd swum it the same way every time. Uh, and, you know, it, we went through, Ash uh, has a great swim, Fides has a great swim, all like kind of personal bests. And I know when it came to, to my moment and when when they touched the wall and that scream. So at this stage, because Australia's led at every stage, the crowd is insane. So they were not only screaming, but they were jumping up and down. And I found out later that where the uh, support structure actually goes into the, the street, the pavers actually came out hmm. um, from all the jumping. But I can remember how loud that crowd was when I jumped in and then the deafening silence um, of being underwater. The Australians are still in front, about a stroke in it. In they go, Ian Thorpe, listen to that roar. This should be something. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe. I came up and I was just in front of Gary Hall Jr., uh, who was the one that said he was going to smash the slate guitar. Uh, He happens to be a nice guy, by the way. Um, But... It was pretty much the last time I was in front. And I can remember uh, at the 50-metre mark, um, the crowd kind of gasped um, because of how far I was behind. Um, And I turned and I pushed off. I had a good turn as well. Um, I got under the water and under the the wave that was coming at me. And so I actually surfed as well. It's the first time I hadn't lost, lost any ground. And then I started working back. Um, and you know, with, you know, 25, um, I think I'm about, uh, half a body length. So I'm a meter behind, um, and with 15 meters to go, I was kind of probably 50 centimeters and I knew I had a stronger finish in me than what he was going to have. And I knew that he'd be hurting more than me. About 15 meters to swim. Thorpe is overhauling him. Hall and Thorpe. Thorpe's in front. Thorpe and Hall. And so, you know, I focused on what I needed to do, which was to make my stroke longer as I was fatiguing into shortening up towards the end. And, you know, it was about eight metres that I put really put my head down um, and, you know, touched the wall. Thorpe goes in. Australia win. New world record. We have just the Australian And, you know, the crowd roars and I stupidly have to look around to see that we've won. Um, My teammates are jumping up and down, but that didn't give it away. Um, So that moment, I think, you know, if we're talking about times of celebration, I actually, we really celebrated that. Um, But it happened to the entire team that the next day we went into this big, like low, everyone, it was like everyone was hungover. Um, oh. It was kind of just, you know, everyone was on too high a high. And the next day we crashed. Um, same thing I think happened in Rio um, for our swimmers is we won the same two events. Um, you know, the girls won the relay, but the same, same thing I think happened. We won two uh, on the first night. And I think they went into a bit of a low after that. Back to Ian in a moment. The previous episode of the Howie Games featured the one, the only, Shane Keith Warren. When you're not sure, you're cautious and you don't want to make a mistake. So you don't play with that freedom. 
So I suddenly then was prepared to go around the wicket and try silly things. I tried wrongins and flippers and also I was prepared to gamble. If I bowled a few bad balls, I, it's okay because I know I'm going to play the next game. And I wouldn't have tried them in my early days in the first few games because I didn't want to in case I stuffed it up. Um, so over that time, I started to think, you know, once I played the West Indies, then we played England and then South Africa, then India, then Pakistan. And I started to play all the different countries and have success against all of them. I started to think, well, okay, how good, let's, let's come on. And, you know, you don't play for records, but suddenly, you know, the fastest of 300 and the fastest of 400, now he's the first person ever to take five. He's broken the world record. And it's like, that doesn't drive you. you just, you're just playing to win. That's Warney on episode 63. All righty, back to Ian. I am going to play you a question not from me now, Ian. The okay. frequent listeners to this show know that my kids are involved in the show and I always show them some highlights and say this is what this person's about and then they develop their own question. Now, you get my daughter, Ian, who rocks by the nickname of The Pickle. Okay. She just turned nine. This is her question to you because it relates to winning and medals. Pickle here. I think it's awesome that you've won five gold medals. If I won a gold medal, I'd wear them everywhere. Do you wear your medals sometimes? <laughs> um. <laughs> Do you ever wear them? No. <laughs> no, you never put no, them on. Like, I ha- well, yes, I have. Um, we had a, a ten-year reunion after the Sydney Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, I I put them on then. Um, we. <laughs> We then used them in the Optus ad as well. Okay. I, I used them and said I, I put them next to Petty Cash. Um, but I, yeah, look, they're in a bank vault. In a bank so actually, vault? Yeah, they're really hard to get, get at. And I wish, I actually wish I could have them somewhere on loan um, and so more people can see them. Uh, now you've handled my daughter. I'm going to put my son straight on here now, who's only six. He's okay. only finding his way in the world. Um, he was at swimming last night. I'm not sure he's going to turn into Ian Thorpe, but he has a go. Uh, this is his question for you. Uh, he'll explain to you his nickname as he goes. Hi, Thorpe. Mac here. I made myself a nickname, which is Big Penguin. I really like it. Do you like your nickname, Thorpedo? And I also have trouble with my breaststroke kick. Do you have any trouble with any of your other kicks? So the big penguin, A, wants to know whether you like the name Thorpedo and B, whether you struggled with any of your kicks. Okay. Um, I can relate to the breaststroke kick. Right. Um, the issue is is kids think that you've got to kick like a frog and you don't. You've got to think it's more like a spring. Okay. So you've got to hold your, um, like your, your quads together and then your feet go out and it's a whip rather that it's more of a whip. Um, so if you if you want to if he wants to watch a video of someone doing it, Liesl Jones is a good one um, okay. to actually watch. Um, and it's it's a really hard position to get in. But I was skiing recently. I was trying to learn what the instructor was going to say, and I'm like, oh, it's exactly like a breaststroke kick. <laughs> <laughs> Had an aha moment. Um, but my my nicknames, I have many. Oh, um, roll me a few. Yeah. So I have it, it's. Thorpey yep. in um, Thorpey for most of my, my friends. It's Thorpedo. Um, and then in Japan, it's Sorpu uh, <laughs> and um, Big Tuna. Big Tuna? Which is Maguro. That's like Big Penguin. That's yeah. right up there, the Maguro. <laughs> um, do you like the Thorpedo? Uh, when it first happened, no. Right. And then I actually did. Right. I was like, okay, this is good. When you would stand on the pool deck in your heyday, and you were the torpedo, and you were in that big black suit. I'm working with Shane Warne at the moment. I'm very lucky. And he talks about 200 or 700 wickets he got because he was Shane Warne. Did you use that sense of aura about you to help you dominate races? Yep, um, absolutely. So I, I in the, um, and I, I only know this now. My competitors didn't tell me while I was competing. Um, probably good, good not mm. to do that. Um, but... You know, I'd sit and I'd be chilled out, relaxed in the marshalling area, chat to whoever's sitting next to me or uh, to one of my teammates. Um, but then as soon as they announced the race, I just kind of went and transformed into me, you know, shoulders back and walking, taking in every moment from the crowd. So you draw the crowd into you. Um, I knew of all of the places that we're going to go to, I was going to get the biggest cheer, which that in itself is, is intimidating. Um 
The other thing that I used to do uh, is I used to not use the ladder. I used to jump out of the pool on the side. Huh. So it looked like it wasn't even an effort for me. Um, so it's, you know, I, I actually made the competition, not just the race, um, but also before and after it is this is what I'm going to take to it. And because I, I, I swam at such a range of events, I could use that in the pool to just, you know, leave people for dead at the end or do it, whatever I felt like in the race, however I felt. Um, so I knew I, I, I did take that uh, to the races. And I came up to, with the, the conclusion after uh, Sydney Olympics. So I, I feel as though the 200 is the, the only race in my career that I lost that I could have won. Um, and I lost it to, you know, the greatest sprinter um, that the world ever seen. Um, but it was the only one that Van I... Van Hoogenband. Uh, yeah, Peter Van Hoogenband. Mm-hmm. Um, so my resolve after Sydney was I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to prepare in training in a way uh, that even on my worst day, I will be better than any of my competitors. And that was the attitude that I took to it. And I also knew because all of my kind of sessions and things, people kind of find out times, I also knew my competitors knew that. Um, So which, you know, that gave me a a great amount of confidence in getting out, out there and racing. The only exception to that was uh, the 400 freestyle in Athens. And I hadn't prepared in the same way that I normally would because I was waiting for one of my mates, Craig Stevens, to make a decision. I was disqualified at uh, the the trials. I actually fell in the pool quite embarrassingly. How was that that moment right there when you fell in the pool and I think you had the eight fastest 400s of all time at that stage. As the Aussie trials, this is to get to the Olympics, you fall in the pool. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Um, swearing and then because knowing that you, you, there's no false starts in swimming and I got out of the pool and I walked back and just was walking back to pretend are they just going to let me through are they, are they just going to let me race <laughs> and I had um, a official court, his, his name's Cliff um, who had to do the worst job ever Cliff was actually on my first international trip when I was a 12 year old to New Zealand so it must have been hard for him to do it as well, where he had to come up to me and say, you're disqualified. And I knew that I was, and I walked out the back of the pool um, and just kind of my uh, coach was there. Um, my They got my mum and dad, my mum down there. Um, and it was just, it was one of those moments where it's just like, wow, we're, I'm missing something. And, you know, I had to get my head out of that race and into my next races um, because I had to make the Olympic team at that stage. And so the mounting pressure that mm-hmm. then came on was enormous at that um, race. Then going into um, Athens was so stressful because everyone had an opinion on whether I should be swimming it or not, um, whether or not Craig Stevens was paid off uh, by me. He gave us his place. That's right. And yep. this is one of my, my friends and I wasn't going to take the spot, but the reason that Craig gave me for him giving up his spot is he knew, he said that the way that I swim and when I win that race, the way it lifts the rest of the team um, is what we've had for the last um, kind of however many years, six years at that stage. And if I don't do that, um, he doesn't know how the team's going to go. So he was the ultimate team man. Well, it was. And, you know, I, I look at Steve-O and go, he maybe could have won a medal in this race. Um, like, and he, so he gave it up for me. Um, and I didn't think I'd take it, but he gave me a reason that I couldn't refuse. Um, and I knew that I'd be underprepared because of how long it, t- made it took for him to make a decision. Um, but I took all that pressure into that race and it's, it is the worst race I've ever swum. Um, because I was thinking about everyone who'd given up things like Steve-O and, um, you know, my, what, what I've been through, um, to actually get there. Um, and when you're thinking of those things, you're not thinking of the right things. And so it was a, a terrible performance. I still won. So it, it, it meant that for every 400 I swum, um, 
since I was a kid, as long as I didn't fall in a pool, um, I went unbeaten since that time until I finished. Wow. You, but you- each time you go unbeaten, the pressure increases. The, the likelihood is, is there's going to be a time when you get beaten in it. So that adds up over a career. So you also won the, the 200. You beat Van den Hoogenban, Phelps and Hackett. It was the race of the century is the way it was described, I think, at the time. So 2006, um, as I said, I'd love to go every race with you, Ian, but we don't have the time for that. Was it 2006 you walked away from swimming? Yeah, I did. One of the great shocks in Australian sport. I can still picture the press conference now. In another way of shortening this, because you just got the long-winded version, as of 2.53 on Sunday afternoon, I decided that I wouldn't be swimming the World Championships. I also made another very difficult decision that day, that I'm actually going to discontinue uh, my professional swimming career. It was a, a tough decision, but one that I'm very pleased that I've made, and I've been working towards this decision for quite some time. Why? Um, I Swimming had changed. Swimming was not what it was when I was a kid. Um, swimming had changed or you changed? No. Um, what swimming had become okay. um, for me. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't given the time that I... So I, I'm, one of, I'm a weird swimmer that I actually enjoy training more than racing. And, you know, when I kind of had my privacy taken away, um, that was part of why I stopped. I just, you know, swimming became about doing press conferences. Um, swimming then also involved having paps at my house, camped out, um, coming to the pool, um, trying to take a snap. I'm like, this part of swimming, I didn't sign up for. Like, mm. I didn't I didn't know that this could happen to a swimmer. Like, I think it's reasonable if you are an actor and you go into yep. kind of Hollywood now, you know that you're going to get followed around and that's part of what you do. Comes with the job. Yep. I didn't know that. Um, and it hadn't happened in swimming before. And it, it was it was that pressure. And so swimming had completely changed for me. Um, it wasn't about this intimacy that I had in the water where I explored what I did, where when I found efficiencies, I'd actually be able to put speed behind them um, and really hurt myself in training. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't have that. And once that was gone, I looked at it and, you know, it was a, a I decided I can't do it um i can't can't do it anymore um and it it was i guess it's sad that i that was what happened um but it was just i was unprepared for that part um of the sport when i returned to the sport i four years later yeah um and i hadn't swum that day um since then uh, I think the two biggest press conferences, one you said you're out, and then the second biggest press conference when you said you're back in. Well, you might have, might have the two biggest press conferences of the uh, 20th century in Australian sport, I reckon. Uh, I Look, it, it was one of those things that I just, it was nagging at me. Um, you know, why did you enjoy swimming when you were a kid uh, and not enjoy it now, you know, as an adult? And so I wanted to get back in and I wanted to go to another Olympics. Um, had you swum at all? No, not at all. I, I, to- I think I'd been to a pool twice um, in that four years. So when you thought, I'm coming back, your first session back, what happened? Oh, <laughs> I could barely drive the car home. Really? Um, I, swam, I swam about a thousand, about a kilometre. Mm-hmm. Um, my triceps were just in agony. I could barely hold them up. And I said to myself, I said, I'll give, I'll give it three days. And if I, I make it for three days, I do three weeks and then I'll do three months and then I'll make a call. <laughs> and I'm, I tell you, those first three days were the hardest. <laughs> like I just, and, and being, a, like being a crap swimmer, like was pretty embarrassing as well. Mm. <laughs> like when um, there's other people at the pool. And so, you know, I, I'd make sure that the sessions were really short so I could be a little bit faster than what they would be if I was doing longer. So old mate, the lap swimmer from Cronulla no. might be going past you. No, he wasn't. Okay, but well, that's good. Um, it that's was, good. <laughs> it was, it just, it, I wasn't good um, coming back. And it, it's hard knowing where you can be and not even being close to it. Um, so after three months, I, I'm starting to actually look good again in the pool. Um, and, you know, I times are improving. I can do the distances that I need to do. And, you know, decide 
that I wanted to come back, but I, I knew that I, I needed that privacy around what I was doing in the pool. So I made it, I was making a decision of who I was going to uh, train with. And uh, it came down to uh, either being Gennady uh, Turetsky. Yep. Um, and the other coach is uh, our head coach of Australian swimming is Jaco. And I, we ended up making the decision of, of going with Gennady because he is kind of a genius. And with my technique, we thought that we could really do something. Um, what I got out of it, and I didn't make that team, I, I couldn't back up from the one swim in the morning mm. uh, to the, the next one. I just couldn't do it. I hadn't trained long enough to be able to do that. Um, but I got, I regained, you know, my passion and my love for my sport um, because Gennady, you know, he kind of, he he showed me that what I do is is incredible. It's beautiful. You're, and you see, and sometimes you have to stop. I don't know the phrase, smell the flowers. Um, <laughs> and you know, I look around and, you know, I'm racing in, you know, Monaco or wherever it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, actually, this is pretty good, isn't it? Um, and I, I took that straight away that, you know, being able to be an elite athlete and being able to do all of the things that we do, um, you know, it really is a, it is a privilege because there's a lot of people out there that have tried that don't, that aren't able to, to do it at the highest level. Um, so that's what I regained from that experience and actually left the sport the second time actually really content which brings us to that okay which which brings us to that you and i worked together in glasgow on the commonwealth games um and and i thought about bringing this up with you and i don't i don't think we ever did there's something that haunts me about your comeback in all seriousness you came back and it was adelaide channel 10 were covering it i was the pool deck reporter and i think it was the was it the 200 semi that was your final race and you got out of the pool and I thought, well, how do I handle this? This is, this is a legend of Australian sport and this is going to be the last time we see him. And, and you were profiled to me and I asked you a question and you started answering. You were devastated. I, I can clearly recall you were devastated. And I'm thinking this is going to be such a difficult interview for this bloke. And it sounds funny at the time now, but then halfway through your second answer, you turned me front on and I realised, as swimmers do, getting out of the water, you had... I had a booger and you, you had, didn't tell me. Well... I didn't tell you because you were profiled to me for the first question and a half. And after that, I, I actually remember thinking, I don't know what to do. This is the hardest bloke, <laughs> hardest interview this bloke's probably ever done. And now I can see what the rest of the country's seeing, that he's got snot hanging out his nose. Um, and it was bloody terrible. And I've never apologised to you since. So I apologise for not reacting right. quicker, mate. Um, because it you know, wasn't good. It, it was. It's not good having it. It's a problem with swimmers. You've got to yeah, do I know. With, well, you normally at the start have... of the interview say, oh, mate, just clean your nose. But uh, yeah. you were side on to me. So <laughs> I, that's one of the toughest interviews I've ever done. And I'm, I'm sure probably for you, looking back, it was probably the one of the hardest series of questions you've ever had to answer. This last 18 months, I don't want to hold you up, but you've become the centre of the biggest sports story in Australia. Has it been a difficult thing to deal with? How have you pulled yourself away from it? Because the front page of every paper, every news break, every radio station is all about your good self. Yeah, the fairy tale that just turned into a nightmare. So uh, I'll hear about it tomorrow. But, you know, I'm very grateful. There's been a tremendous number of people that have supported me, supported what I've been trying to do. Uh, We've seen a fantastic crowd here this evening. So although I wasn't able to produce what I wanted or what everyone else I think wanted to say. Uh, I am really grateful for everyone supporting the way they have. It's, it's very generous. Do you know, for me, it was, and my resolve was, um, I've, I've won heaps of these mm-hmm. and I haven't lost. And who am I in, in that moment? What, what makes me, me? Um, and I, you know, I realized I wasn't good enough at that, that particular time. Um, the times I'd done in training, the things I'd, I'd done, um, you know, I could have gone a bit faster, but I didn't. I couldn't do the backup part of it. And um, it, it was okay. But I also remember all of my friends who have won Commonwealth Games gold medals, uh, you know, been world championships and things that have missed out on the Olympics. Yeah. One of those persons as well as well is my sister who missed out on the Olympics. Yep. And I actually went, wow, this is really tough. Um, 
And, you know, I, I, I instantly gain um, sympathy that I didn't understand uh, before for those people who, you know, are my friends that, you know, could have been at Olympics as well. We've got, and, we, sorry, we, we've got tight on time now, so I'm going to have to ask you a couple of questions um, very quickly. A lot of kids listen to this show. Um, you could take 15 minutes to answer this. What's the key to success, do you think, in sport? It's a combination. Don't let anyone tell you it's one thing. It is a combination of skills that you can work on. Um, you have no control over what anyone else does, so focus on what you can do at that particular time. Um, improve, you know, a physiotherapist will say it's how um, flexible the person is in, in swimming or in sport. Uh, the psychologist will say, oh, it's the mental skill set. Um, you know, a, a coach will say it's because they're so driven and they do all the all the laps or the run around the track. And don't you don't listen. It's the combination of those skills. It's not one or the other. Um, so you work on all of them at the same time. And I think that's the key to getting there. But you also have to believe that you can. You sh when you're a child, um, you are told that you can do anything. And it's true. Um, that's how I used to look at the world. Mm. And as you become older, um, you start to lose that. So there's, there's an advantage in being young mm. and understanding that you can do anything. And when you start to have a career, you start to think, oh, I've got multiple races. Maybe I should back off in this one so I'm informed for the next one. Um, you've already put a limitation on what you can do. And that's where a career gets stuck. Um, and, you know, that's what ended up happening to me. I was training faster and racing slower. Um, and so that's kind of, yeah, how you get there. I didn't want to jam this question on the in end, um, but we have come short on time. I, I think sure. personally, for everything I've seen you do in the pool and all your achievements and the OAM and the gold medals, I, I think the best thing you've ever done for Australia was to throw your advocacy behind the marriage equality in the last couple of years in Australia, um, to me that outweighs anything you did in the pool. I don't know how you view it. When it was passed as a successful vote and the country finally progressed to a position where it should be, how did that make you feel? I was, I was proud of how far I'd come on this. Um, when I was 16, I was asked directly by a journalist um, about my sexuality and at that stage, I denied it because I didn't know. I didn't, didn't really know myself at that time. Mm -hmm. um, we progress on that when I was 17 uh, at the Olympics and I was about to turn 18, I turned 18 on a plane um, on the way to New York. It was the first time that it was going to be printed in a newspaper that I'm rumoured to be gay. Um, so for me, I went through this whole struggle around my sexuality, um, and being gay because I was being accused. And so if you use like being accused of being gay, it's in a negative tone already. So I always thought of it as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And then as I kind of came, uh, to my position when I decided, yep, I'm going to come out. Um, I was, I was a little bit frightened of what the response would be, but the response from Australia was amazing. Um, from there, my life got progressively better and better. I got to live with an authenticity and integrity that is kind of key to my personality, which I couldn't do before. So when marriage equality came up, um, because what it means to everyone else out there, I was like, I will be behind it and I will go around, help fundraise money, um, you know, speak to politicians, uh, and make sure this thing happens. Um, Taking you back, uh, it was only in 2004, only about 33% of people supported it. So we nearly doubled that number in, you know, just over 12 years. It's quite, it's, it's significant that this will not be an issue for people going forward, hopefully. We still have different issues that we've got to deal with um, around homophobia. Um, some of the things, and, you know, for young kids out there that, that say that's gay, um, I don't think you really should be saying that because you only say that's gay when it's something that's not good. You don't say that's gay when it's something good. So I think it's the same as any kind of racism. Um, you've got to nip it in the bud. Those little things, that kind of casual, 
homophobia, casual homophobia or casual racism, you've got to get rid of it. Um, that's the next step for us and for young people. Um, but yeah, look, when, when it happened, uh, it was one of those things that I was actually proud that Australia had progressed to this point. I think it could have happened a, a lot sooner, um, but it was it was it, it was the hardest possible way for us to get a win was the way that it was set up, uh, and we still got a resounding yes, which meant uh, any of the politicians they could not ignore it. If it was in the fifties, maybe, um, but once we knew it was in the sixties, it was like no, nah, they have to get this through quickly. And finally, and finally, they did. Um, I have to let you go. What's next for Ian Thorpe? I can't thank you enough for the time you've given me and your depth of explanation. Um, and personally, mate, I'm stoked to see you look so health, happy and healthy and fit. What's next? Great man. Um, you know, more interviews, but uh, I'm look, I, next is, is really what I'm doing with Beyond. I think I'll be doing this for a number of years. Um, and continuing supporting, um, you know, the ambassador roles I have, mentoring a few athletes, um, getting involved with the AIS wellbeing program. Uh, you know, they're the things I'm doing. Um, and, you know, settling into being home in Australia. I've um, kind of lived away for a long time and I've come back uh, and, uh, and enjoying the sunshine. Ian, it is a true thrill to have you on the Howie Games. You're a master of many things, but more than that, you're a warm and friendly chap. Um, I always appreciated working with you and to sit with you and have a chat with you about some of the great moments in Australian sporting history over the last 20 years has been an absolute sure. thrill, mate. I really appreciate it, Thorpey. Pleasure. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Ian Thorpe, as I said at the start, a man of passion and conviction and an athlete who performed great feats on the greatest of stages. Thanks to Ian for his time and his wonderful, wonderful Olympic descriptions and to Optus for making Ian available. A quick shout-out to MJ, doing a great job as always, the guru producing the show. But from what I can gather, MJ has become very passionate about Alaska. Hmm, Alaska of all places, I'm not sure why. Hit him up on Twitter at MJ20 and ask him. Very cold in Alaska, guru. Anyway, until the next episode featuring a big bash brother, Chris Lynn, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.